avoid repetition. Wait, is this another? Yeah, this is number five. Okay, number five. Number five is avoid repetition. Number five is avoid repetition. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. That's How are great. you doing? I'm, I'm doing very, very well. Yeah. Uh, I was feeling, I was feeling a little bit jittery. I had a lot of coffee this morning and yeah. then uh, just maybe 30 minutes before we were going to start, I found out from the babysitter that she is out of town. And so we kind of had to sc- uh, scramble and get somebody in at the yeah. last minute. It was actually fewer than 30 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like so, maybe 15. So it was it was a little bit frantic, but but I don't know. I just suddenly, maybe it's the intro music does something to me. I, I feel calm now. <laughs> All right. Calm seas. So we are based on, I, I know that if you're listening to this later, uh, we actually record this live and we have listeners in the Sean West community who we get to hang out with in the chat. We're running a little bit, late on our timeline today. So we're just going to jump right into the topic. Yeah. Today, we're talking about seven practices to help your child become a great listener. All right. Uh, This is, I want to listen to this episode. (laughs) Yes. So the, the first thing that I think really helps me is understanding that listening is a skill. Mm-hmm. It's something that has to be developed and it's also mm-hmm. something that has to be practiced. It's it's a skill that even as an adult, you have to continue working on. Oh yeah. And, well we can we can drop into bad habits too as adults, as adults and kids. So it's something that continuously needs work. I'm sorry, what were you saying? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Especially males, huh? You guys yeah. you guys have a really hard time listening. To women. I feel like sometimes in my house, my voice is uh, the equivalent of invisible. Like, you know what it is? This it's so is so soothing. Yeah. No, there's, there's, a study, there's a study out there that the female voice, because it, it's in the range that songs and, and other kind of more natural sounds mm-hmm. tend to be in that same range, that in many cases, it's not. It's not that it's not as loud or audible necessarily, but it's not as noticeable. Yeah. And, and so for that reason, it's, it's almost like when you're talking, somebody is singing and it's like, well, why would I pay attention to somebody singing? Yeah. That is uh, disturbing in a household of seven males. Right. Plus there's sports that you have to, no, not no, in our house. Not in our house. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a skill that you have to continue working on. I do the podcast with Sean, mm-hmm. the Sean West podcast. Just yesterday, we were sitting down recording live. He doesn't know this, so it's confession time. Uh-oh. We were sitting down recording live and he read a question and I had zoned out for whatever reason. And so I've, I've actually developed these tricks that I use to help me answer a question that I haven't heard. Yeah. So 
so he, he read the question and then he looked at me and he said, Ben, what do you think? <laughs> I had to pause for a moment uh-huh. and I, I went into, you know, like j- the just recent memory of what, what did I maybe hear? And I pieced that together into the question that I'm pretty sure that person asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do this all the time with me. And I gave a great answer. It's pretty maddening, actually, because I'll tell you things. And then a few hours later, you'll ask me a question about the exact thing I told you. Hmm. And I'm like, what? I We just had this conversation. Yeah. So I, I apologize. Yeah. You have to apologize for that a lot. So you think about adults still needing to work on this skill. Kids are just learning. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, even even into uh, being a young adult, you're still learning and, and trying to grasp this skill. And here's another fact that really helps me when it comes to our kids, especially because they're so young. Before children are about two to three years old, and really anywhere within that range, they they don't have d- the developmental ability mm-hmm. to listen and follow instructions and even even at 2 2 or 3 years old they're really only capable of following one or two part instructions yeah mm-hmm. and that's if and that's under the right circumstances right. you have their full attention they're well rested right they're not hungry <laughs> there's nothing else distracting them they're they're completely focused on you Mm-hmm. You give them one or two step instructions and that's still under those circumstances about all they can handle. Yeah. There was a funny example of uh, a kid who was told you have to pick up your jacket and then go line up at the door. And he didn't start listening until go line up at the door. So he mm-hmm. went straight to the door, didn't pick up his jacket. But that's that's really typical. Yeah. And I think some, I think, I mean, we talked last week about personalities and I think that certain personalities can listen better than others because, or or they develop the skill that's necessary for, for listening a lot faster. Yeah. Because I see with our, with our second son who is six, he, since he's been really young, has had an amazing ability to follow instructions and listen to instructions and, you know, just be able to even voice those instructions back to us. And yet our eight-year-old has trouble with that, you know? I think some of that has to do, when you're talking about the personality, Mm -hmm. it has to do with how much they live inside their head. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and, and that can definitely be a personality thing. Yeah. So that's that's something that's good to know. These These are just some things that are good to know when we start this conversation because it really, it really helps take some of the pressure off. It's like, oh, okay. So, so I, I shouldn't get upset that my two-year-old doesn't follow my instructions yet. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the first thing, the first practice that really helps children become better listeners is using the words cookies or cake before you, before you're (laughs) going to tell them anything else. Oh my goodness. You you, you got to say something to get their attention. So you walk into a room, Are they're watching being, TV you're or being something. Facetious, and you, right. And you say, cake, you immediately have their attention. Mm-hmm. No, I'm being facetious. You yeah. don't want to do that. 
Because if you have a sticky brain child, that will never leave their brain. You said cake. <laughs> yeah, they, they actually won't hear anything that you say right. after that. So really the, the first and, and really most important piece of listening is fostering a strong relationship with your child. The more connected they feel to you, mm-hmm. the more willingly they will give you their attention. So, I mean, think about how difficult it is sometimes to just demand your child's attention. When you, when you have a close connected relationship, it sets the stage for a more attentive response Mm -hmm. when they hear your voice because of the strength of that relationship. Right. I mean, you think about when you feel close to someone else, you want to hear what they have to say to you. So it makes sense in a, in a relationship perspective. Yeah. And, and you think about it's, it's really just a subtle thing, but even in, even in your adult relationships, when there's somebody who you don't really care for, or they get on your nerves or they purposefully treat you badly, Mm -hmm. you're less likely to give them the attention that they want when they're trying to talk to you versus somebody who you are very close with. When, when you walk into a room because of the relationship that you and I have, maybe this isn't a good example because I'm, I'm still not a great listener to my spouse. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, sincerely though, in a, in a room full of people, I'm, more likely to pay attention to you and what you have to say than any other given person. Yeah. I have this thing that happens to me. I used to work as a journalist and I would go interview people. And some, sometimes people would be really good interviews. You know, they had great stories to tell. And then sometimes they wouldn't be all that great because they just didn't elaborate. And then sometimes there would be these people who would just go on and on and on. And it had nothing to do with what I was trying to you know, tell a story about. And I have this weird thing that happens to me when people just talk and talk and talk and my brain just starts shutting down a little bit and I get like really sweaty palms and I feel like I'm going to pass out. Almost like it's my body's way of saying, oh my gosh, too many words. I need to leave now. Yeah. Your your body's trying to protect you from potential danger. Yeah. And sometimes that happens with our children because they take about a million words to say, Something that I could say in like five. They got that from me. (laughs) It's never happened with you, ironically enough. Probably because of our connected relationship. Well, that's good. (laughs) It's good to know because I, I can be quite verbose. Yes, you can. So the second practice is to cater your message. And I, I want to be careful with this one just because I don't want it to seem like you always have to try to bend to their will or change your message mm-hmm. depending on what they want. But, but it's good to keep in mind that your child doesn't care about the same things that you care about. Yeah. And they're not interested in the same things that you're interested in. And so when you have a, a instruction or some important an instruction, sorry, or some important piece of information that you want to share with them, it helps to know their context for that information. Mm-hmm. If it's something they're not interested at all in at all, it's good to know that because then you can say, I know you're really focused on this right now. I've got to have your attention so that I can share 
something with you. And, and what you can also do is you can be a little bit more expressive. You can be kind of a caricature. You think about the, the things that are appealing to children using big body language and, and, and really showing in your face some expression Mm -hmm. can really grab their attention and, and help them feel like you're, you're speaking to them in their language, kind of in their way. Yeah. I think one of the things that we did with our oldest that I probably would have changed if we could turn back time is that a lot of time, I mean, he was a very strong-willed child. He had his own idea about the way things should go. And we, mm-hmm. we did a lot of explaining the reasons for things. Yeah. And I think he wasn't quite ready for that kind of stuff. I mean, this was starting when he was probably like 18 months. He had an amazing vocabulary for an 18 month old and, you know, continued that throughout the second and third years. And so it, it, it made us think, oh, well, he understands the reasoning behind things when really that cognitive ability doesn't even develop in a child until about the fourth year. Yeah. And so we wasted a lot of words trying to explain things instead of just, you know, mincing it to the necessary words. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to, okay. So you think about the difference between a children's book and an adult novel. Oh yeah. Uh, The way that things are described and explained are completely different. Mm -hmm. And, and so you've got to think that way with your, with your child the message that makes sense to you, the way that you tell it to yourself or the way that you would tell it to another adult doesn't resonate the same with a child. You've got to kind of shape that language. Mm-hmm. All right. So the third practice is evaluating and adjusting. And so before you deliver your message, what is your child doing? Are they, do they have their attention somewhere else? Are they playing do they, are, are they upset? Were, were, did they recently have a meltdown? <laughs> Looking at the situation before you deliver your message can help you determine whether or not you should deliver it at that time or if there's something that you need to do before you can deliver the message. And, and sometimes there is something that's distracting our child and, and you may need to try to pull their attention away from that or you may need to remove that thing altogether. Mm-hmm. like turning off the television or maybe it's some you know legos that they're playing with and you need to put the legos away before you can have their complete attention a lot of times our kids mm-hmm. have they're they're reading books and they'll do all all of the cues that show us they're listening even kind of glancing up at us from their book but until we close that book we don't really have their full attention yeah and this is something that we worked on extensively or we we work on every June because that's the month that we examine our listening value. And one of the practices that we did in there uh, in the month of June and that we continue to do every year is putting away the things that are distracting us when somebody is trying to either tell us and give us instructions or talk to us about something. But the other piece of that also is, I think this goes back to your evaluating and changing your message is seeing if it's a right time. So on the kids perspective, if they come to us and we're in the middle of a phone call and they have to tell us some urgent message, teaching them to see the correct time to do that is really important. And so if we can model that ourselves, then they learn naturally 
and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it's also an opportunity to demonstrate respect mm-hmm. because we don't like to be interrupted when we're in the middle of something and we're really trying to focus. We don't like to just be interrupted and, and say, hey, you have to listen to me right now. Yeah. I mean, we, I get on to the kids for doing that to me. But, but then sometimes we turn around and we actually do that to our children. And, and it's kind of unfair. It's like saying, well, what I, what I think is important really is important, but what you think is important can, yeah. can be interrupted. Now, that's different if there's just been an altercation of some kind and we have to address what's going on. Because I think what's also true for kids is that they usually know what they've done wrong and they don't re- really want to hear about it. But we have to talk about some things whenever they do something wrong. And so a lot of times with our oldest, he'll, you know, he'll be like, I don't want to talk about this right now. And he'll pull up, pull out his book. Yeah. And, you know, we can give him a few minutes, but we, we need to go back and address those things. Yeah. And the, and the timing there can be important too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes right after it happens, they're not ready to listen, Mm -hmm. but, but yes, it is. And and that's not to say that it's never okay to interrupt things, but there's a there's a way that you can interrupt things that is respectful mm-hmm. and and honoring of of what the person is feels as important, right? Uh, and instead of just yanking it away and saying, "Hey, listen to me now." Mm-hmm. All right. So number four is speak more quietly. Hmm. Yeah, you were trying to do this last night. I was trying to. You were trying to. It's pretty hard in our house. There's, there's this runaway effect that happens with noise. I call it the cafe effect. (laughs) The cafe is quiet when it first opens, nobody's there. You, the, the chef or, or the, you know, the cook, whatever you call it at a cafe there, you can hear some things kind of clinking around, but it's really quiet. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the first patron comes in and they order their coffee and they sit down and they're, it's just, it's just that one person by himself. And then somebody's having a meeting, a breakfast meeting. And so a, a couple of people come in and they start talking. And meanwhile, somebody else comes in and sits down and the waitress is taking that person's order. And then a couple more people come in and eventually because the noise level has risen, somebody starts talking a little bit more loudly than they normally would. Mm-hmm. And then because that adds to the noise in the room, somebody else starts talking a little bit more loudly. And before you know it, by the time breakfast is up and running and, and that cafe is full, it's just a roar of noise. Yeah. I think, I think the level of noise in our house is like an elementary school cafeteria. It feels that way. Mm-hmm. So certainly the number of people you have in your house can determine whether or not this is really an issue for you. Mm-hmm. But in our house, we we get to shouting sometimes. And and I have to take a step back and think, okay, is this really the most effective way to communicate? <laughs> not shouting because we're angry. Right. Shouting just to get over the noise. I mean, we bought mm-hmm. we bought a <laughs> a megaphone. We have, we do, we have a megaphone. Because we, we were it. like, we were hurting our voices, trying to get over the noise level just to get the intention of our boys. So when you, when you talk more quietly, it forces the other person to be more attentive. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can do that consistently, it just develops that skill of, okay, when this person talks, especially 
when their voice isn't trying to compete with other voices. I need to listen. I need to zero in on that voice. Mm-hmm. Avoid repetition. Wait, is this another? Yeah, this is number five. Okay, number five. Number five is avoid repetition. Number five is avoid repetition. <laughs> This kind of goes along with the the speaking more quietly thing because what happens is we say something mm-hmm. and based on the fact that our child didn't even turn around is continuing to do whatever it is they're doing, we are pretty positive that they didn't hear a word we said. And so we say it a little bit louder mm-hmm. and, then we, and then we say it a little bit louder. Sometimes repetition looks like you go into a room and your child is, you know, playing with their toys or reading a book or something. And you say, Hey, get ready. It's time to go. Mm-hmm. And then you walk off and you come back five minutes later and they're still playing with their toys. And, and you say, Hey, get ready. It's time to go. And, and what that does, it makes sense in our mind because l- logically the first message was not received, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so we have to repeat it. And for as, for as many times as that message is not received, if we, if we want to convey it, we have to say it again. But what this, what happens is that over time, your child expects that the first time you say something doesn't necessarily mean that they have to listen to it. Right. Because they know that you're going to repeat it. They're not doing this maliciously. No. It's just, it's, it's really something they're observing. They're like, oh, this is my first warning. The second one will come soon. Yeah. So I have, I still have a little bit of time to play here. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have to stop what I'm doing immediately because they're going to remind me again. Yeah. So one of the things that you can do is you can communicate some consequences ahead of time for not listening and following instructions right away. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that I like even better than that is, is after the first time you give a message, if it is not heated or if it's, or if it's not listened to, you physically intervene and we'll get to that as, as another practice. Oh, okay. But when you only give them one opportunity to listen, the message that you're sending is, I'm only saying this once and that means that when I have something to say to you, it's important for you to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And over time, that teaches them to listen to you the first time you say something. And, and really, the only time you will say something to them. Yeah. It's really hard to do. It I is still, hard. every day I find myself repeating. <laughs> All right, number six. Practice attention and focus with your kids. Now, this is a this is a really kind of Mr. Miyagi way of developing attention, but you're you're focusing on activities that breed attention and focus. And and, and I'm gonna give you kind of a spectrum here, a range. So on the one end, you've got television and screens. What's happening is the their ability to pay attention and focus is being helped a lot by what they're seeing on the screen. There's a lot of movement. It's really interesting. There's sound and, and it's very engaging. And so 
they don't have to work very hard to pay attention. On the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got something like meditation where you're sitting, there isn't input from anything else. It's really just your, your own mind and you're trying to focus on a singular thing or not focus on anything at all. Mm -hmm. And so you've got these two extremes on the meditation side. You have to work very hard to focus and pay attention and not get distracted. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a muscle in that sense. So when your child reads a book, even a book with pictures, they're exercising that focus and attention more than they are when they're watching television. When they're reading a book without pictures, they're exercising their attention and focus even more than when they're reading a book that, that has pictures. Mm -hmm. And so those are just a few examples. And, and meditation with kids, which is a topic we should bring yeah, in at some point. Yeah, we will, I'm sure. Um, is, is a really powerful way that you can help a child develop their attention and focus muscle. Mm -hmm. And that's going to help when it comes time for them to focus and pay attention to another person. Yeah. And I just wanted to say here too, there's a big difference between just listening and actually hearing because listening is the ability to hear with your, your ears, you know, it doesn't have to process through the brain or anything like that, but true hearing is processing what the other person is saying instead of just listening to the words that come out of their mouth. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's a small difference, but it's a huge difference in the life of a child. You know, we don't just want to teach them to listen. We want to teach them to hear. Yeah. And so focus has focus and attention has a, is a huge part of teaching them to hear. And, you know, I mean, the focus and attention of a one-year-old is not the focus and attention of an eight-year-old. And so we have to keep that in mind. But there are ways to develop that focus and attention. Yes. And, and so the the practices of reading and meditation, those are kind of Mr. Miyagi ways. But one of the most powerful ways that we help our children learn how to listen is when we, and, and this is number seven, it's when we demonstrate it by, mm -hmm. by listening to them. And this one really, it hits me because, and, and even last night, though Jaden, our oldest, was breaking the rules coming into our room several times to show me different things and, and talk to me about things. I was really focused on what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was working on a song or something. And, and because of that, I wasn't being a, a good listener. Hmm. I kind of had my auto responders going and I justified that for myself because I, I said, well, he's breaking the rules coming in here anyway. I'm going to interrupt him and say, Jaden, you really shouldn't be in here. You should be going to sleep right now. Mm -hmm. And those were opportunities for me to show him what it looks like to be a good listener. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so, you know, some of the things that our children are really interested in or get very excited about aren't very interesting to us necessarily. Right. Being a good listener doesn't mean that you're also interested and enthusiastic about what the other person is, is talking to you about, but it's the ability to focus on what they're saying, to really hear it mm -hmm. and to 
and to be able to express back to them what they said to you. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we use with them that we were working on this month was the three questions whenever somebody's trying to tell you something or the three yeses is what we called it. Yeah. Whenever somebody's trying to tell you something, they ask the person who's receiving the information asks the sender three questions and has to get three yeses from that. Uh, just to review that. Yeah. Um, but I also wanted to say that when we were examining our family value, the family value is actually, we listen earnestly always. And it's, it's one of those things that's almost impossible, but yet it's something that we keep as a framework because we're always striving to listen earnestly always. But one of the biggest things that I learned the month that we, uh, the first month that we examined it is that I just, I am often, a distracted listener when it comes to my kids because they use so many words and because I'm always doing something else. I'm always doing dishes. I'm always putting a load in the laundry, always trying to diffuse arguments, all of those things. And so when one of the kids comes to me and wants to tell me something that's really cool to them, and it's not exactly, I mean, an example recently is that my son is really into the legend of Zelda book. The oldest is into the legend of Zelda comic books Mm-hmm. And he will talk for hours on Legend of Zelda. And that's just, you know, it's not something that I enjoy. And I love that he loves it. But whenever whenever he starts talking about it, I find that my brain just kind of shuts down. Um, you should tell him to come talk to me. Yeah. Well, but I I want to show him the good listening skills as well, you know? Yeah. And so... One of the biggest things that I learned that month was that I really need to work on showing them my attention. And uh, I wanted to share, I don't know if you got into this, but I wanted to share some of the practices that we used for that listening month. Do you? Yeah. Would you please? Yeah. So, so well, and, and let me, uh, for, for those of you who haven't listened yet to episode one of this podcast, our very first episode, we talked about family values. So this listening earnestly always is one of our family values. And for each of the 12 that we came up with, mm-hmm. we also came up with some practices. Yeah. Some, and those practices will change as they get older and they get better at the skills that we were trying to teach. But for the young children, one of the biggest things that we did was teaching them to make eye contact with someone in yeah. order to listen. Because, you know, in this technological age, even you and I often have our eyes on computers or phones or something other. I mean, mine is usually books, you know, yeah. like they're trying to tell me something while I'm reading and I'm halfway listening, but halfway still reading. And, um, and so one of the biggest things that we did was in order to show that you're listening in order to be able to hear what the person is saying is you make eye contact with the person. And this isn't an easy thing for kids because they don't really learn how to do this anymore. You know, I mean, our kids are growing up in this age of computers and they don't have as much face to face, you know, especially our older teens and stuff. They don't have as much face to face contact anymore. And that's kind of scary to me. So it's it's really important for us to teach our kids that part of listening is looking in someone's eye because we're not just sending a message with our words. We're also sending a message with our facial expression with the body language that we use. Yeah. And if they're not able to look at a person when a person is talking, they can't get all of those other messages that are so important to hearing. 
Yeah, I was I was actually going to bring that in as a bonus one at the end, but I'm glad you mentioned it here. And and I would add to that to the eye contact part, uh, physical contact as well can be a very so just touching somebody on the shoulder. Oh yeah, that was one of the things I was going to say too. Sometimes, and and this is funny because I've done this to our kids where I'll actually put my hands on either side of their face, <laughs> and, get them to look not, at you, and not forcefully, yeah, but, but just kind of draw their face. And then the kids have actually done that to me. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that they can get your attention. Yeah. So, so not only are they getting my eyes, but they've also, you know, there, the, there's a hand on my shoulder, a hand on my face. Mm-hmm. And there was something our, uh, our oldest has done, which is, it's really funny to me when we were trying to talk to him one time and we had told him, you got to make eye contact mm-hmm. here. And yeah. So he was, he would look at us for a few seconds and then he would dart his eyes away at whatever he yeah. was looking at before. And then he would look back at us and his eyes just kept going back and forth. And we said, Jaden, you're not really, you're not really looking at us. And he said, no, I'm looking at you with one eye and I'm looking at this other thing with my other eye. <laughs> He's a crazy kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's not really working, son. Yeah. He, and that he asked the question too, is it working? No, no, it's, it's not, not actually. <laughs> um, so yes, the, the touch thing to get their attention, I think is important as well, because oftentimes we can begin talking and not have our kids full attention. And mm-hmm. our expectation is that, is that they do what we, you know, what we've said. I mean, whenever our oldest is getting ready to go out of the house, like we're all ready to leave. He's usually upstairs either reading a book or listening to an audiobook or something. If we just pass by his room and say, hey, we're leaving in five minutes. There's no way that he hears that because he's so engrossed in what he's doing Yeah, that it's really hard for him to hear in the middle of the other noise. And so just having a touch, I'll, I'll usually go into his room and touch his shoulder or his head or something like that. And then I'll, you know, he'll usually look at me or I'll pause his audiobook or something like that just to make sure that I have his attention because, you know, we can have such high expectations and think that our kids should just be able to do this. But the reality is, you know, as engrossed as I can get in a book, they also get so engrossed in a book that they just don't even hear. Yeah. And, and they just don't have, they haven't developed the skills yet to, Mm -hmm. to be able to pick up on that outside input and interpret it and make sense of it the way that we have. So one of the other things that we tried to be intentional about teaching them was the interruption thing Uh, And we're still kind of working on this, but was just having a conversation about interrupting each other. We have a lot of interruptions in our house because it's hard to explain to the three-year-old twins that, hey, I'm talking to your brother. And yeah, but it's, it's always a skill that we're working on. And one of the things that we are incorporating is whenever we're in a conversation with someone else, the child comes up and places his hand on our arm. And in order to acknowledge it without using words, we put our hand on top of his hand to yeah. let him know, okay, I'm, I know that you're here. I know that you want to say something. I'm waiting for a pause in the conversation so that I can address you. And yeah. it's, you know, it's just teaching respectful communication because when a child interrupts us, it feels necessary. You know, like 
at least for mom, I, I don't know, from a dad's perspective, but for, for moms. I can, I can ignore the child all day Yeah, long. you can. I know. They, they but for moms, it. it always feels vital. And yeah. like we, I mean, our hearts are so connected to our children that whenever the interruptions come, we just let them have those, you know? And so part of, part of teaching respectful communication is also teaching them how to, how is the best way to interrupt Yeah, when they have something to contribute to the conversation. Right. And, and I would, I would definitely put that under the practice of demonstrating or teaching because you, you are demonstrating that the attention that you're giving the person to whom you're uh, talking at the moment is important and and you want to focus. So you're showing them by not giving into their interruption that this is, this is an important value, this listening. And then you're also teaching them how to, how to be respectful and, and still be heard. Mm -hmm. And one of the other problem areas that we had was when we would sit down to dinner, we go through what everybody is thankful for. And then we usually ask a question. Um, We have these popsicle sticks that we draw questions from so that we can have discussion at the dinner table. And one of the problems that we were coming up against is that the kids were just being really loud or they wouldn't listen to each other when one of them was answering. And so one of the other practices that we adopted is that they would listen during those discussions and we would you know, ask a pop quiz or something. If we felt like one of them wasn't listening, we'd, we'd be like, Hey, Jaden, can you rephrase what Asa said about what he's thankful for? And then if he wasn't listening, then he had, you know, Asa had to repeat it, but Jaden was listening fully, you know, it it was kind of just like calling them out on the not listening. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know when you, when you know, there's going to be a quiz at the end of this. Yeah. Maybe you listen better. I don't know. Yeah. By the way, listener, there is a quiz at the end of this podcast. Uh-oh. I'm just kidding. Did you have any any more from the practices for that value? Um, I'm besides the three yeses. I think that was. That I was really. I, I want to bring the three yeses in to kind of round this out because I f- I feel like that practice is is phenomenal mm-hmm. in helping children develop their ability not just to listen but to hear, and so. Uh, I, I, we mentioned it kind of in passing, but, but the way that it works is you say something or, or you give an instruction or maybe you're telling a story or maybe you're, you're talking about how you felt about something the child did and the it's, and it's kind of a game. You say, okay, now you have to repeat back to me what I said and try to get me to say the word yes three times. Mm -hmm. And, and based on their understanding of what you said, they may or may not ac- accomplish that. Sometimes, sometimes the best I can get is two yeses. Yeah. So an example of that is, is if, if I'm telling them about the way I felt about something they did, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I yelled at you. I, I felt angry when you stomped on my foot and then threw your drink against the wall and, and made milk splatter everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, I lost, I you lost little my temper. Monster. <laughs> I, I, f- I felt like you did it on purpose because you hate me, but I realized that you're just a child and, <laughs> and, and so I apologize that I, that I yelled. And so it, it, for them to get three yeses, they could say something like, 
Okay, you felt you felt angry. Yes. Because I threw my drink against the wall. Mm-hmm. And I stomped on your foot. Yes. That's good. That game well, game well done. Yeah. So, so that's that's kind of a fun way to take the pressure off of the seriousness of that conversation, but also helps them develop the ability to not just hear, but to, or not just listen, but to really hear and be able to say back in their own words what someone is telling them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a necessary skill for anybody, really. Absolutely. <laughs> when, you when might, you're listening. You, yeah. Next time you're having a conversation with a bad <laughs> listener, yep. Sean, Sean, next time we're doing a podcast and you ask me a question and I've zoned out, you, we can play the three yeses game. <laughs> That's all right. Did we want to answer questions or did you have more? Yeah, no, I, I wanted to go ahead and bring in the questions now. Before I do, I'm just going to go back over these seven real quick as a recap. Oh, wait, I think I had one more, one more thing I wanted to say. No, never mind. We just won't. Okay. Okay. So the seven practices are foster a relationship. The stronger the relationship, the easier it is going to be for you to communicate. Number two is cater your message. Keep in mind the way that your children communicate, the, the kind of things that interest them and, and grab their attention, and, and try to put your message in a way that, that makes sense for them. Number three is evaluate and adjust. Look at the situation. Look at what their emotional state might be mm -hmm. and, and let that kind of determine when and how you deliver your message. Number four is speak more quietly. Number five is avoid repetition. Number six is practice attention and focus by doing things like reading or meditating. Number six is, I'm sorry, number seven is demonstrate and teach through things like the the three yeses game by showing them your listening skills by paying attention and listening to them when they're talking to you mm -hmm. by helping them understand how to be heard when you're talking to somebody else and how not to interrupt so there you go all right so the questions that we have one's from Corey miller he asks how can I help my daughter listen better if she doesn't fully comprehend my words? She is very headstrong and wants things her way and likes to throw major tantrums when she doesn't get what she wants. She's only a year old. What can I do now that will help us in the future? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the Miyagi stuff here. Okay. Well, okay, so one, the, the demonstration for children who are developmentally not capable of following instructions yet, uh, the demonstration thing is huge because really at this age, they're more mimics than they are anything else. So what are you saying by demonstration? What does that look like? Uh, it, it means that when you're holding, when you're holding your daughter and you're having a conversation with another person, she's watching you. And so the, how you listen and how you respond, how you say back to that person, what they've said to you, mm -hmm. all of those all of those things register. Yeah. All of those things become part of what she will bring into her listening ability. So 
it, and it, and it may seem like a small thing, but all of those small things add up. Yeah. Um, and also, and, and I know she can't talk yet, but, but the attention, the attention and focus that you give her when she is doing things that are, that are kind of asking for your attention. So sometimes when our kids are playing, they kind of watch us to see, oh, are they, uh, and, and then maybe they're doing something that's funny or interesting to them and they're watching us to see if we're paying attention too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so giving them our attention, even though it's nonverbal communication, it's still communication and it's still a way that we can demonstrate. And then the Miyagi part, the reading together, reading books aloud, getting getting her used to hearing your voice and, and focusing on your voice for longer than just a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, because her ability to listen to you read a story to her without interrupting is the same skill that she'll use when you have another message to deliver to her that she needs to pay attention to. And I, I feel like um, this question might have maybe two different parts because a lot of times I know in our house, what we use for listening uh, or for the word listen is obey. And so a lot of times we're saying, but you're not listening to us when we, what we mean is, but you're not doing what we say. And so that translates as listening. And I don't think that's bad, but I think in a little, you know, a little one-year-old, I think one of the, the most important things that we can do is connecting with that child when they're going through those meltdowns, when they're throwing themselves on the floor and, you know, doing whatever and demonstrating to them that we get them, that we understand them, that we, you know, maybe using your words for them because we can usually figure out what it is that kids are upset about. And I think, I feel like that's a pretty vital skill for helping her develop some listening skills is just maybe giving her words, giving words to what she's feeling in the first place. Yeah. Because then, then she actually feels heard. She, she understands what it feels like to be heard and can then do that. So, uh, I mean, I just, I, I feel like a big part of the way that we teach kids listening skills is understanding where they're coming from. Yeah. And, and that is in and of itself a demonstration Mm -hmm. of what it looks like to be a good listener. You're, you're such a good listener that you didn't hear any words and yet you're able to use words to express the communication that you've received from your child when they melt down. I mean, really any interaction that we have is a form of communication. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's trying to say something. It's she, he or she is trying to say something when they have a meltdown, when they throw a fit, when they ignore you, they're, they're trying to say something. And so when we can use language to express those things back to them, it's, it's a really powerful way of showing them what it looks like to listen. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to address Terrence's question too, because I feel like it has a little bit to do with the, you know, the developmental stage. He says that he has a child who's six weeks old. Is it too early to start training with listening? And it sounds kind of silly because, you know, you have this little six week old, but part of, part of teaching them listening too is just speaking language to them. And, Mm -hmm. um, what I do with our four month old is he's in the stage where he likes to talk. And so 
I'll let him talk and then I'll talk back to him. And we hold this conversation that doesn't really have words, but it's teaching him, you know, there's, there's eye contact, there's smiling, there's all, there are all of these facial expressions that he's learning. And when I do talk, when I do read stories and stuff, he's, he's mesmerized by the language, you know? And so I, I think a lot of, I mean, it, it really does sound silly because you're like, what does a six week old understand or what does a four month old really understand? But he, they're learn they're constantly learning language they're constantly learning these skills that are necessary when they become older and you know it's I, I feel like it's probably never too early to start yeah I love I love that idea of because I, I, I think about when he's laying down on the bed and looking up at you and you're looking down at him and that I, I think six weeks is a little bit early for them to start verbalizing. Yeah. Things, but, yeah. They don't usually, but if they're awake, mm-hmm. their eyes are open and they're maybe they're kind of moving around or wiggling or whatever, but you can, you can kind of talk to them and then let there be a pause and, and kind of teach them in that way, the rhythm of conversation, the rhythm of speaking and listening. And again, it's not something that they're going to understand or really have any kind of framework for, but it's, it's a part of building that framework little by little Mm -hmm. in in very small ways Yeah, that over time, when, when they do start filling those interactions in with meaning and understanding, um, they'll, they'll be more equipped to be better listeners. Yep. All right. So Gabrielle says, I have a real issue with my oldest seemingly ignoring people. They'll have to repeat themselves over and over in order to get a response. How can I communicate the importance of acknowledging that you've heard someone to him? He's five. We've, this we've is, experienced yeah, this. Yeah, this is a big thing. Uh, our oldest is one of those who he'll usually hear, but he doesn't respond until he's ready to respond. He's a lot like you. I think you're you're that way too. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll ask you a question and it takes you forever to respond. And I'm just like, did you hear me? <laughs> yeah. And so part of part of what we've tried to teach him is when someone has talked to him, acknowledge that they've talked to you and let them know I'm thinking about the answer or, you know, just communicating that, yes, I did hear you, but I'm not ready to give you my response yet. You know, because some people it takes them. I mean, some people are definitely more interior or they are like you where they just think out loud. And so it takes them a while to process their, what they would like to say. Yeah. There, there've been times when I'll be walking with Jaden to his classroom and a, a boy or a girl will say hi to him. And it seems like he, he just hasn't heard them at all. And so I'll lean over and I'll say, Jaden, that boy said hi to you. And, and he'll kind of snap out of yeah, it and turn around and be like, oh hi but he yeah. says it really quietly and yeah. the person's already it's yeah. it's kind of a funny thing but i worried for a little bit when when that was happening because i thought is he sometimes that is associated with uh with certain diagnoses yeah uh, like asperger's right and, mm-hmm. and so so i was a little bit concerned about that and i i do want to pause here and say if there's something that you're concerned about with your child's ability to communicate based on where they are developmentally. Um, or if you're concerned that maybe they have hearing issues, it's, you should definitely bring that to the attention of 
your pediatrician, ask oh, them yeah. about it. Don't go to Dr. Google and yeah. freak yourself out. <laughs> Rachel. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, that's me. We actually had him tested for Asperger's because of that. And then he shared a couple of other, you know, the introvert and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he was, it was totally not what was going on with him. But uh, some of the kids who are a little more cerebral and spend a lot of times in their heads, it's yeah. it's hard to teach them the concept of paying attention because when they're focused on something, they're super focused on it. And yeah. it doesn't matter what is happening. I mean, the house could be burning down when he's reading one of those Legend of Zelda books and he would not even know. And so it really is a skill that one develops. You think about the things that um, as, as you grow up, when you, when you're an adult, there, there are these kind of automated responses that you have to all kinds of different input. Mm -hmm. Somebody, somebody waves to you and your hand will automatically go up and wave back. And your brain made these connections and, and put these automatic things into play to save processing power. So you didn't have to think about that interaction as mm -hmm. much. And our, some of our kids come by those things a little bit more naturally than others. Mm -hmm. And so for those that it, that it doesn't come naturally to, they don't know the, the social rules and that kind of thing. It's just something that they have to be taught and they have to practice yeah. over and over and over again. And eventually it, it does become something that's more of a default and, and they can call on that default response. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think sometimes that, that kids who are just so focused on those things, they just, they really just don't, are so focused on what they're doing. They just don't hear what's going on on the, on the outside. And th I think for those kids, it's even more important to do that touch or to wait until they close whatever they're reading or whatever they're playing with, or, you know, it's, it's even more important to teach those kids to make the eye contact and, really, really work on those skills. Yeah. And oh, I know what it was that I wanted to say. So I'm sure that we'll probably do an episode on this, but another thing that we learned in all of the, you know, all the testing that we had for our oldest is that, um, gifted children, which, you know, most creative people have what's considered, what are considered gifted children. And those children often have a lot of trouble with certain developmental things like listening and social skills and things like that. And so, yeah, um, that's something that, uh, we never knew until we started doing research and we talked with a psychologist and all kinds of things. And well, it there, was just really interesting to me. Yeah. There are different areas of development. Right. And if you think about it, if you think about it this way, you've got different containers. And, and so one container would be like physical development. Uh, one container will be mental or intellectual development. One container will be emotional development. Mm -hmm. One container will be social development. And so you've got these containers and the flow of, I guess, development, if you, if you think about their ability to grow in each of those areas, is just one stream and, and, it's, and it's coming down. And for some children, each of those containers fills up at the same time they they grow evenly in all of those areas and it's pretty evident and, and they're considered more, I guess, normal. Um, for some, 
and the intellectual one will fill up really quickly. And, and because it's taking up more of the development stream, the other ones won't develop as quickly. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the way that I like to think about it. That's not, that's not necessarily a scientific rule. If, if your child develops quickly, uh, intellectually, they're not going to develop as quickly physically or whatever, right. but, but it's, it's a good way for me to think about it because it helps me realize my son seems very smart. And, well, and, and he is, he he's is very, very smart, yeah. but I can't just assume that because he's this, at this level of, of smartness or of intelligence, yeah, that he's also at the same level of emotional intelligence or, or that he's going to be at the same level of social intelligence. And so, so it's, it's just good for me to think about that because it helps me to be more empathetic, more understanding Mm -hmm. of where he is developmentally. Of when he starts whining like a three-year-old and he's eight. (laughs) Yeah. Because the emotional capacity hasn't quite caught up with the brain capacity. (laughs) That's right. So, uh, we, I need to, I need to go ahead and Cut us off here. Yeah, like I, I said, we were running a little bit late. We had a lot to cover, but this was such great information. And um, I'm excited about some of the other conversations that are going to come from this topic. Yeah. Thank you to the people in the chat who asked questions. Mm-hmm. Great questions, guys. Great questions. If, you have, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't checked out seanwest.com slash community, if you haven't checked out the Sean West community, you owe it to yourself to check it out. This show is supported by it and it is filled, the Sean West community is filled with people who are like-minded, who have similar values, who care about the same things, who are very encouraging and uplifting and challenging. And, and, and so I can't encourage you enough to go to seanwest.com slash community, see what it's about and consider joining as a way of supporting this show, but also getting a ton of value for yourself. Yep. Another way you can help out the show is to go to intheboatwithben.com slash iTunes and leave us a positive review. We've been hanging out. I don't, I don't care too much about this, but it is kind of fun. We've been hanging out in the new and noteworthy section for kids and family. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. And it's because, it, it's because people have, have given a five-star rating and left their review because people have been listening to the show mm-hmm. um, that it's been hanging out there. And it's a great way for people who aren't familiar with us to discover this show and to discover the information we're sharing. And so if you haven't yet go to go to in the boat with slash iTunes and leave us a positive review, uh, help us keep hanging out up there in that new and noteworthy. So others can uh, experience this show. Where can people go to find us online, Rachel? In the boat with Ben.com. That's right. Mm-hmm. All of our shows are there. We've got full show notes. Uh, if you don't have time to listen, you can always read through those. I spend a lot of time working yeah, on those. Yeah, you do. And it's just really, it's really great information. If you want to find Rachel, she's at racheltolson.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Rachel Tolson. And on Twitter, I am Ben Tolson. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you.
All right. That was a good show. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and bring in what we were talking about before. Okay. For the after show, because I really like, I like this topic and I, and I do want to expand on it a little bit more in the future. But I was thinking earlier today about the responsibility thing with our kids. And the reason it came up was because our babysitter called uh, about 30 minutes before we were going to start the show, said she was out of town. And, and even though, and and she, you know, was apologetic and, and it wasn't a huge deal. We were able to get somebody to help out, but I thought, you know, I could just leave it at that. I could just leave it at, oh yeah, it was the babysitter's fault. (laughs) But, but what's better than that is if I can take responsibility and that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean saying, oh, this was my fault that this happened. Yeah. Um, but it is recognizing the fact that I am a, a an involved party and I can be responsible for something that will keep that or prevent that from happening in the future. So for, in this example, I could call the babysitter on, on the Wednesday or Tuesday before we're going to record, we record on Fridays. I could call a few days before and just confirm that she's going to be there. In this case, that would have saved us a little bit of panic. Panic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I could have t- I could have taken care of that ahead of time. And brainstorming like how we could possibly do it without a babysitter. <laughs> yeah, put the twins in cages and <laughs> kennels. <laughs> but but I think about the power of that for our kids when when they do something wrong. Uh and it was their fault. Not, not demonstrating for them that they don't, they don't have to own their part in that, that, that it could be somebody else's fault and and pass blame, but to show them and and say, you know what, as the responsible adult, I I can say that there's something that I could have done that would have prevented that. And, and it's just taking on responsibility. And I, I really like that for our kids because they do tend to, they, they kind of default to passing blame because they don't want to be at fault because being at fault sometimes in their mind means, oh, I'm not acceptable. And so we, we do want them to always know that they're acceptable no matter what. But I think another byproduct of knowing that you're acceptable no matter what is the ability to take responsibility for something and say, you know, I can, I can accept my role in what happened and I can do better in the future to make sure that this thing doesn't happen again. Yep. Responsibility is important. Kids are really good at blaming other people and not taking responsibility. Right. Grownups are really good at that too. Well, I think that's where the kids learn it from. (laughs) 